Good morning, church. After our Advent series in the Old Testament and a short stop in the Psalms to be reminded about the goodness of God's word at the beginning of the year, it's time to return to the Gospel of Matthew. We're partway through chapter 12, that's where we left off, so let's recap a few things quickly before we jump in. Chapter 12, if you haven't heard any of our messages in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12 is a great place to hop in. It's kind of a turning point in the book. Jesus had finished the Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 7, where he demonstrated his authority in his teaching. Then Matthew presents us with example after example of Jesus demonstrating his authority in every other area of life. That's been his project all the way through chapter 10. We've seen that Jesus has the authority to heal, to cast out demons, to tell nature what to do, to raise people back to life from the dead, and even to forgive sins. Then we read through the second discourse in Matthew, the missionary discourse where Jesus calls his 12 disciples and then immediately sends them to the surrounding area to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of heaven and to heal, which they do. They spend time on the road doing what Jesus asks them to do. And while they're gone, Jesus answers some questions from John the Baptist, affirming that he is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, And then he reveals his heart to the people. He says in chapter 11, verse 28, remember these words, especially for our passage today. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is Jesus telling us who he is. So Matthew has has shown Jesus' authority. Jesus has named his ambassadors, his 12 disciples, and he's sent them out to do their first work. Jesus has affirmed his messiahship, and he has revealed his heart. So by this time in the Gospel of Matthew, we know Jesus pretty well. At least we should. We have a sense of who he is. Many questions have been answered. But now, a big question remains. How is it that this Jesus, who has revealed his authority over all things, how is it that this Jesus came to die on a Roman cross? Why didn't people recognize him for who he was? The rest of the Gospel of Matthew is filled with more of Jesus' teaching and more miracles, as we'll see. We'll go through all of it. But from chapter 12 onward, animosity toward Jesus will increase at a rapid pace, And we've seen this happening throughout the book, bit by bit. But then chapter 12 hits, and verses 1 through 14 14 emphasize this animosity toward Jesus. Because Jesus is embroiled in a controversy over the Sabbath. The religious leaders felt like he was breaking the Sabbath. But they failed to realize that Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath. That he even had authority over the Sabbath day of Israel. Far from breaking it, Jesus was fulfilling it, as he does with all the law. But the Pharisees, these religious leaders, are fed up with Jesus, starting in chapter 12. So listen to Matthew 12, 14. It says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. That's where we left off back in November. 
And that's where we pick it up today. So let's stand together and read Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 37. Again, Matthew 12, 15 through 37. It's a longer passage, so if you get wobbly on your feet while we go along, please sit. There's no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil." I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Please be seated. And let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word today, and everything in it, we pray for guidance. We pray for understanding. We know that that's only possible through your Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we ask now for understanding, that you would illumine the word for us, that we would know you more, and mold, our shape, mold and shape our lives to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. A connecting thread for all of Matthew 12, 15 through 37 is the idea of words. Words. And we find here an emphasis on the importance of of words. Ultimately, this passage brings us to realize that words reveal the heart. <clears throat> Pastor Andrew is fond of saying this phrase when it comes to deciding how to say things or in analyzing how things are said to him. He says, he says, words matter. 
He often says, this is a words matter issue. This is a words matter passage. What we say, especially what we say about God, matters a lot. Matthew's gospel is all about words. He is very careful in picking his words, but he's also careful to show that Jesus fulfills certain words, which is where our text starts today. First, words fulfilled. Verse 14, remember, tells us that the Pharisees began to conspire against Jesus to figure out how to destroy him. So verse 15 says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Jesus is well aware that the Pharisees are now trying to kill him. They're seeking his life. They are conspiring. Jesus also knows that it's not yet time for him to go to the cross. So he withdraws from the synagogue, which is where he was, and presumably he withdraws from Capernaum, where the Sabbath controversy takes place. Maybe he goes into other parts of the city. Maybe he goes into other parts of Galilee. We don't know. We're not told where he goes. We're only told that many follow him. And because Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart, we're told that he healed them all. Do you notice that in Matthew, he says he healed them all? That's the heart of Christ. But then Matthew tells us that he orders the crowd whom he heals that has followed him to not make him known. Jesus doesn't want his fame to increase at this point. And Matthew tells us why. He says in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Maybe you recognize what he quotes here, Isaiah 42, verse 1, and verse 18. God uses these words to speak about Jesus at his baptism in Matthew chapter 3. This is my beloved son, God says, with whom I am well pleased. And the father proclaimed that about his son at his baptism. He wanted his people to be reminded of Isaiah 42, verse 1 in its entirety. In fact, at Jesus' baptism, we see the Holy Spirit descend in the form of a dove and rest upon Jesus. So Isaiah introduces right there in chapter 41 of his book, the idea of the servant. There in chapter 41, where it starts, it seems to be in reference to Israel. But in 42, which Matthew quotes here, the servant idea shifts to a particular man, the Messiah. Matthew quotes this passage here to let us know about the character of Christ, again, about his heart. So let's, let's read it again. Read it slowly with me. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. All that Matthew really needed to quote in order to back up his claim here is what's contained in verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. The Messiah would be a quiet figure, not seeking controversy, not seeking fame. He would not be out for his own gain or self-interest. 
And that's exactly how Jesus is. He was never motivated by his own fame. He did not desire to cultivate a public persona or become a local celebrity. He did not start fights and he didn't scream at his opponents. He came to do what the Father wanted him to do always. Jesus always did the will of the Father. And Jesus always reveals the Father to his people. So Jesus orders the crowd not to make him known because that wasn't his purpose in coming. He didn't come to be a celebrity. He came to reveal the Father and to do the will of the Father. But as we've seen, Jesus' fame did spread. We saw before Jesus told two blind men, two, two men that he healed to not spread his fame, and they did anyway. And that led to an increase in controversy, and so it does here. He's not interested in making things worse at this point, so he orders the crowd not to make him known. And yet it seems implied that they do, because right after this, we have another controversy. Again, Matthew could have quoted verse 19 here, and that's all he would have needed, but he also includes all of Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, and I think that's on purpose. Matthew's trying to tell us even more about Jesus. They teach us several things about Jesus. First, he is the beloved servant of, of Isaiah who is chosen by the Lord. His, the, the Spirit of God rests upon him. But notice also the emphasis on the Gentiles in this passage. Do you see that? Twice. Twice the Gentiles are brought up. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles in verse 21 also. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Remember, Matthew is writing to a mostly Jewish audience. One of his major arguments throughout the whole book is that Jesus also came to save the Gentiles. And he includes this here as a reminder that all people, regardless of ethnicity, race, or nationality, are called by Jesus into the kingdom of heaven. They are called to respond to the gospel. Amen? All people. But Matthew also includes this full quote to teach about the heart of Christ once again. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Reeds were useful to have around back then. They were used often as a straight edge. They grew very straight. And they used as support in building. They were cheap because they were everywhere. You could just go grab them. And they were especially easy to replace. You could just snap the broken one that wasn't straight anymore, the bruised one, and go out and get a new one. A smoldering wick in a lamp or in a candle does more harm than good. A wick that smokes too much in an oil lamp is unusable. You would snuff that fire out and replace the wick in the lamp. Toss the old one out. These are some examples from everyday life that teach us about the heart of Christ. The bruised reed and the smoldering wick are analogies for human beings. There are many people in life who seem useless or beyond repair. There are many people that our world throws away. But the heart of Christ is this. He does not throw people away. Amen? A bruised reed he will not break. 
and a smoldering wick he will not quench. It would seem like a lot of wasted effort to try to repair a bruised and bent reed when you could just go get a new one really quick. It would seem like too much work to try and make a smoldering wick work in a lamp. In normal life, both would be chucked out and replaced. But Jesus is such that he takes the time to repair the broken. And he is patient with those who don't work properly. Amen. This is his heart and his character. He is patient. He is long-suffering and gracious. And he calls his sheep to himself. In other words, he is gentle and lowly. No one is beyond repair to Jesus. Praise God. He is willing to take the time with you. You may feel like it's not worth repairing you. That's not how Jesus sees you. He doesn't care how broken up and bruised you are from your past and from your sin. He will repair you. And he will do this until the time when justice is complete in his victory, when Christ is on the throne in his eternal kingdom. He will be long-suffering with you. He will keep repairing you. He will keep fixing all things until all things are fixed in him. The way that Jesus looks at humanity is exactly how we should look at humanity. Do we give into the temptation to think that there are some out there who are beyond repair, like a useless bruised reed? Do we feel like there are some out there, even in our own families, who might be beyond repentance? Are there those you've given up on? Or worse, are there those you've thrown away? Jesus' attitude to the lost and the broken should be ours. We should desire to see the restoration of all people. Amen? In our sixth core value here at Lake Morton Community Church, which is ministry to the whole person, we say each person is uniquely created in the image of God, designed to enjoy communion and fellowship with Him. As a church, we seek to know and serve people individually. That's who we are, and that is the heart of Christ. May it be our hearts too. Jesus fulfills these words in all these ways. The tragic reality of our passage today is that despite all of these beautiful words about the heart of Christ that are true of him, the enemy speaks only second words against. Despite Jesus' effort to stay under the radar, controversy surrounds him very quickly. Verse 22, though a wonderful miracle, merely serves as the occasion for the controversy. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Excuse me. What a wonderful miracle. Jesus shows again his authority over the spiritual realm and over the forces of darkness, over Satan himself. This man is freed from a demon who is causing him to be both blind and mute. Now remember, not every sick person Jesus heals is demon-possessed or oppressed. But it must have been obvious to everyone around Jesus and to Jesus himself that this particular man's sickness was caused by a demon. It must have been obvious. But now the man is free. 
He can see and he can talk. Because Jesus gives sight to the blind and he gives the ability to praise. Hallelujah. Listen to the crowd's reaction to this miracle. The people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Now, we've heard the crowd's amazement before, but can this be the son of David? This is a direct reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and David's promised son. We should all be familiar with that passage after our Advent series, right? You know what I'm talking about there? The son of David was the Messiah. The crowd is speculating. Could this be the son of David? The one who would sit on David's throne forever? Notice that it's stated in the form of a question. They don't know yet. They're wondering. But this is the first time the crowd has openly speculated about Jesus potentially being the Messiah. The crowd has served as a character throughout the Gospel of Matthew. They've been amazed at his authority. They've asked, who could this be? Who is this guy? But here, they start to ask themselves, could this be the Messiah of Israel? But guess who's lurking about again? That's right. Our good old friends, the Pharisees, who are now actively plotting the death of Christ. They hear the crowd... When the crowd asks this question, they are not happy. They don't want people thinking Jesus could be the son of David. So they say, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. What they mean by Beelzebul is simple. Satan. Beelzebul is Satan. Let's make that clear. The Pharisees are saying that Jesus casts out demons by the authority of Satan. You'll recall back in chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus says that the Pharisees have been calling him Beelzebul himself. So in the minds of the Pharisees, Jesus does his work through the power of the devil, as we see here. And back in 1025, they think Jesus is the devil himself. Beelzebul was a common alternative name for Satan. And there have been a lot of attempts to explain the etymology of the name Beelzebul. Like looking at Old Testament gods in Canaan and talking about Zeus and all kinds of language. All we need to know is that Beelzebul is another name for Satan in the minds of the Pharisees. That's who they're talking about. That's how they're using it here. That was a common name at the time. And it's important that we realize that because that's exactly how Jesus understands their statement in the next few verses. So verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, pause, knowing their thoughts, they just stated something out loud to the crowd. So what does Jesus mean here? He doesn't have to read their minds. But he sees immediately to their motivations. Jesus knows what's in their hearts, and that's what he speaks to. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Jesus hears their accusation, and he immediately starts pointing out the absurdity of their argument. That's what verses 25 and 26 do. Satan would not try to tear down his own kingdom. Satan is not an idiot. 
He knows he shouldn't work against himself, and he certainly wouldn't put up with a civil war. You might have a thought. Well, maybe he'd sneak somebody in like a spy and do like one exorcism to convince people that he's a good guy. But you have to realize, as, as you've been reading the Gospel of Matthew with me, I'm sure that you've seen that Jesus is waging total war on the enemies of God. He's constantly going throughout all of the land, casting out demons. It's causing absolute chaos for Satan. So for the Pharisees to accuse Jesus of working on behalf of Satan is incredibly absurd. Satan would not want someone in his own ranks waging total war against him. And remember, these Pharisees have accused Jesus of being Satan himself. Why would Satan harm his own efforts of demon oppression and control? Again, their accusation is absurd, but Jesus doesn't stop. Verse 27. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Jesus' second argument points at other exorcists in Israel. The Jewish leadership, these Pharisees even, affirmed the act of exorcism. It was a known thing. There were other exorcists going around. And there were certain men who claimed to follow the Pharisees who were exorcists, their sons, which just simply means their disciples. And they claimed to exorcise demons through the power of the Spirit of God. Just as Jesus claims here, they're all claiming the same things. So if Jesus is casting out demons, which he's doing much more effectively than the followers of the Pharisees, if he's doing it by the power of the Spirit, then their own sons who claim to do the same thing will heap judgment upon them. Jesus' point in verse 28 is important here. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Which would have landed with a boom. This is exactly what the Pharisees are unwilling to see. If Jesus is truly doing the work of God through the power of the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Which is pretty much Matthew's whole point in the gospel. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God at his incarnation. And he will bring it to fruition in the future. He has been systematically breaking down the kingdom of Satan. And verse 29 even tells us, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. That's what Jesus has been doing to Satan over and over again. Satan is the strong man in this little parable, the guard of his little kingdom. And no one yet has been able to plunder his goods. So like an evil tyrant, he had held humanity hostage to their sin and to their flesh But now Jesus has come, and he has taken Satan and bound him, and he has plundered the strong man's house. And he demonstrates this every time he casts out demons in his ministry. The defeat of Satan is ongoing and progressive throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. And then Satan is ultimately defeated at the cross. His power is taken away. Sin is dealt with 
at the cross. And in the future, he will receive his full punishment at the return of Christ. But make no mistake, when Jesus entered the world, the reign of Satan on earth began to end. Praise the Lord. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is upon you. And Jesus is the dividing line. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters, he says. He is the king of the good kingdom. And the king demands allegiance. There is no middle ground with Jesus. When it comes to his battle against Satan, you are either for him or against him. And that's it. Remaining neutral is like saying, I'm fine. I'm content with Satan's reign as tyrant. So either you are actively fighting the forces of darkness with the king of light, or you side with the forces of darkness. So those who help gather the sheep to Jesus are with him. Those who participate in the kingdom of God are with him. But those who don't help gather the sheep to Jesus are fine with Satan scattering them. Instead of joining in the kingdom, the Pharisees seem to be fine with Satan's reign. By aligning themselves against Jesus, they align themselves with evil and the forces of darkness. And instead of joining the kingdom, they lob absurd accusations against Jesus. And these accusations have eternal consequences. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. There's a lot of confusion that surround these verses, so let's walk through them carefully, remembering the context of the passage, of course. The Pharisees have just stated that Jesus' healing of a demon-oppressed man was done through the power of Satan. And they did this, they said this, right after the crowd proclaimed Jesus to be the son of David. The Spirit is at work in these miracles, revealing who Jesus is. Many are coming to recognize Jesus as the Christ. But instead of recognizing that themselves... In the face of all of the spiritual evidence in the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Pharisees assert that he is acting in the power of Satan. In verse 31, Jesus clearly teaches that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. If you are unsure about what all of this means, the one thing to highlight is that. Jesus teaches every sin and even blasphemy will be forgiven people. But there is one sin, he says, that will not be forgiven. Blasphemy. He goes on to say the same thing in different ways in verse 32. Even if one blasphemes the Son, it will be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. There are many Christians with tender hearts and tender consciences who falsely think that they may have committed this sin. There are many Christians 
with tender hearts and tender consciences who anxiously question if they accidentally committed this sin. But let's be very clear. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a decisive sin that cannot be committed accidentally, and it cannot be committed by Christians. Why do I think that? There have been many church leaders in the past who have taught that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable or unpardonable sin is murder or adultery or something like that. Even though these are big sins, we know that that is not true. Paul, speaking to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a long list. Long list of people who would not inherit the kingdom of God. But then Paul says... And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So just as Jesus teaches here in verse 31, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. The unforgivable sin is not any, on these, any of these that Paul lists here. The unpardonable sin is also not simply saying something incorrect about the Spirit or making mistakes in our language or being corrected later on in our theology. So borrowing from the work of a theologian and Bible scholar named Andy Nacelli, this is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is a decisive rejection of truth revealed about Jesus through the Spirit by ascribing Jesus' work to Satan. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a decisive rejection of truth revealed about Jesus through the Spirit by ascribing works to Satan. It's a specific thing. Those who commit this sin reject the truth revealed to them. And so they never repent. They have been confronted with the incontrovertible truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Spirit and they reject it. And this hardens their hearts and they continue in the sin of unbelief. Not only do they reject it, they call good evil. Jesus, they would say, is like Satan. Their heart is hardened and they will never show contrition for their sin. Christians do not commit this sin. Those who are saved by Jesus Christ, eternally united with him, are sealed by the Holy Spirit. They do not commit this sin. It is a sin unbelievers commit. And it is not the same as ignorance. So someone might hear the gospel and not believe because they just choose to ignore the message. But that's not the same as going out of their way to ascribe the gospel to the work of Satan. So I hope that clears up some of this for you. I know that there's a lot left to ask about, but I want to say one more thing on the topic. None of us can know, none of us can know if someone in our lives has committed this sin. Jesus can, God can, but we can't. We cannot know. We cannot know that someone has committed the unpardonable sin because only God knows the heart. So we never give up on people. We never give up on people. 
As far as we're concerned, there is always a chance of repentance. I know that for many, this is a tricky passage. And I would love to talk about it with you after the service if you have any questions or you need other clarifications. And I certainly don't know everything and don't have every answer, but I'm willing to talk to you about it afterwards if this is a sticking point especially. So please let me know. Jesus is warning the Pharisees here. He's warning them that they're on thin ice, that what they're saying will lead to their eternal death. Because for Jesus, words matter. For Jesus' words are third from the heart. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Verse 33 sounds like a proverb. Jesus isn't commanding that we make trees, either good or bad. It's like our saying, give a man an inch and he'll take a mile. It's a saying. Good trees bear good fruit. In other words, a tree's goodness is shown to the world, is revealed by its fruit. So it is with man in his words. The Pharisees, whom Jesus calls a brood or offspring of vipers, cannot speak good because they are evil. Offspring of vipers, of course, is really significant here. It should remind you of Genesis 3.15 and the offspring of the serpent who would bite the heel of the offspring of the woman. These same Pharisees would be the ones to put Jesus to death. Jesus is not just insulting these men by calling them baby snakes, although that's a pretty funny insult. He's saying that they are aligned with the enemy of mankind, the serpent of the garden. They are his offspring. They cannot speak good because they are evil. They have evil in their hearts, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words that we speak to each other and to God come from the storehouses of our hearts. The treasure that we hide here, either a treasury of evil thoughts and feelings or good, comes out when we speak. It especially comes out when we speak about Jesus. So a good question for you to consider is this. How does one get a good treasury in the heart so that he might say only good things. Well, the truth is, before Christ, all of our hearts are evil. All of our hearts are corrupt. We desire only the passions of the flesh, as Paul says in Ephesians. We do not want to worship the Lord as he's revealed himself. We actually align ourselves with the devil, again, Ephesians 2. A good heart only comes through the grace of God, which means that good words about God only come through the grace of God. If we want a heart filled with abundant goodness, we need God's abundant grace. Amen? And that is only possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Words matter. 
What we say about the Lord matters. Verses 36 and 37 make it clear that what we say has eternal consequences. On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, Jesus says. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Sometimes the Bible, in God's providence and goodness, has passages like this that strike our hearts with holy fear. That's that's what should be happening right now. This should give us a little bit of holy fear. Not only will we be judged, but we will be before the Lord and called to give an account of every careless word. It's not careless in the sense of casualness. God is not worried about your carefree jokes or your silliness. This is not a call to be stern Christians who never smile. This is careless in the sense of arrogant and false. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we believe careless things in our hearts, we will say careless things, false and arrogant things. Jesus says that we will even be justified or condemned based on our words. Because again, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we have been given a new heart in Jesus Christ and it is filled with the good fruit of the Spirit, we will confess the gospel. But if it is filled with evil, what will we confess? Evil. So, Where's your heart today? What do you confess? Have you been too careless with the things that you say? There is a temptation to think that our words mean very little to God. But Jesus teaches us that the words we say reveal our hearts. Words matter throughout the whole passage. Words said about Christ. Hundreds of years before he came mattered a lot. They needed to be fulfilled. The words that the Pharisees say about Jesus mattered a lot because it revealed their station before God. Set against him. Offspring of serpents. And what we say matters a lot. It reveals what we believe. Do you confess your sin and repent before the Lord? And do you confess the goodness of God in your daily life? The goodness of his gospel? Do you give thanks out loud for the things God has done for you? Is what is so deep in your heart, the gospel, does that actually make its way out into what you say? And how do you act with people? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, which should give us pause if we find that we are all too often simply sarcastic or arrogant with each other, tearing each other down. If that is you, and if you take great pride in that aspect of your personality, I would call you to read this again in your devotions tonight. What is in abundance in your heart? Let's pray.
Let's take a moment before the Lord now, before we come to the table, to analyze our hearts, to repent of things that need to be repented of, to ask the Lord for a new heart if we don't have one, and to pray that the Lord would continue to bring things to light that are hidden deep down that that need exposure to the gospel. Spend some time in personal prayer. I'll call the ushers forward. Lord, we confess today that we often are careless with our words, not uh, not mindful as we should be that our words actually matter, that they reveal something about us. Lord, we pray that our words would be a reflection of the change that we've experienced through your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.